Thank you, Dale. Well, we've been pointing to this point for three weeks, four weeks, gouging out and cutting off. Gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands. Can you imagine Jesus said that? He actually said that. Look with me at verse 27. We're going to look through this passage uh, one more time this morning. And then next week we're going to move on to divorce. Aren't you excited? (laughs) Not only divorce, we're going to talk about marriage talk about all the things that are attendant, so we'll have a little mini-series that I think is uh, necessary in some cases. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Does Jesus believe in hell? Oh, clearly, clearly. Those last two verses, verses 29 and 30, where he talks about and uses this graphic, graphic language, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Do you think that Jesus meant for us to literally do that? Or maybe was he speaking figuratively? Let's have a vote. How many people say he meant it literally? Okay, we have four, five, six, seven, seven people who say literally. Eight, nine, 10, 11. Okay, so 12, 13, 14. Wow. Now, you know what I'm asking, right? Did he mean literally to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand? Okay, let's have the other vote. How many, how many vote for figuratively? Oh, yes. The majority of you, because you do not want to gouge out your eye <laughs> and cut off your hand. You're hoping he's speaking figuratively. <laughs> well, he does. In this language, he uses, and he, he is very forceful. And in so doing, he gives what looks like, certainly at first glance, the way to deliverance from sin. Sin in the heart. But does it make sense that if the problem is in the heart, that the solution should be to gouge out one's right eye or cut off one's right hand. Because if you gouge out the right eye, you still have a left eye with which to lust. If you cut off the right hand, don't you still have a left hand to continue with your sinful acts? I submit to you that I believe that Jesus is speaking and he's using a figure of speech, hyperbole. He's speaking figuratively of those things, be they physical or otherwise, that cause us to be tempted or to make us more susceptible to temptation. In other words, he wants us to understand something. This is why he uses hyperbole. He's getting our attention, getting the attention of his hearers. He wants us to understand the character of sin. But not only its character, he wants us to hate it and forsake it entirely. This is why the graphic language, it gets your attention. You think, does he, I'm supposed to really gouge out my egg? Is that severe? He wants us here to understand the real and horrible nature of sin. We looked in depth the last two weeks at the nature of sin. And how powerful it is. Sin is 
encompassing, it's powerful. It rules the human nature down to the very core. It controls us. But not only that, sin is subtle. It deceives. We don't even realize how severe it is. We don't realize how controlling the power of sin really is because we've been deceived by it. But not only that, we talked about the perversity of sin, how perverse it is. And because it's perverse, it causes us to pervert every good gift that God has given us. As humans, I think if you think, if you just think and you look around and you think of this world, this life, God has given us a wonderful creation, has he not? He's given us wonderful gifts. But because of sin, we manage to pervert every single one of his good gifts. Even when we, we say, oh, that shouldn't be, we still do it. So he wants us to know the character and the depth of sin, that it is a pervasive power, that it is subtle and deceptive, that it's perverted, but it's also destructive. Destructive, you can see, he uses two ways to express his destructiveness. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Is that destruction? And then he goes on to the extreme, and that's hell. He talks about hell. I'm always fascinated by people who say, oh, I don't believe in hell. Oh, so that makes it non-existent, right? Just because you don't believe in it? You're the expert. Just because you don't believe in it doesn't make it any less true. There is a place called hell. Why would you want to chance it? Why would you want to take a chance that there is no hell? Why? Who? Don't be so prideful and arrogant. Explore this. You'd want, I'd want to settle that issue once and for all, wouldn't you? Because if it turned out to be a hell, I'd want to know how to get out of that. So Jesus is using hyperbole. He wants us to understand the terrible things in which sin involves us and the incredible importance of dealing with sin and getting rid of it. And so he deliberately uses, again, this hyperbolic language. His point simply is this, that sin must be dealt with radically. You can't pamper sin. You can't flirt with it. You can't nibble a little of it around the edges. And everybody does that, don't they? Well, just a little bit of sin. Little, I tell, it's just a white lie. We do that. We, we see, we, 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 we wrestle with where, where really, where does it become serious? What can I get away with? In our culture of people today, the whole issue of, of sex and such, you know, when does it become sin? The minute you start lusting, it's already done it. You don't have to do anything. You can't just nibble around the edges of sin. You can't pamper it. Do you remember back in uh, the book of Genesis in chapter 4, remember the account of Cain and Abel? In verse 7, I believe it is, of chapter 4 of Genesis, God comes to Cain, and he says to Cain this very, very important thing. He says, sin is what? Crouching at your door. It wants to have you. But you must master it. He says that just prior to Cain doing what? killing his brother Abel. The truth is the same for everybody else. Sin is crouching at our door. Even saved people, even people who are delivered from the power of sin. It's still resident in our yet still fallen human natures. We'll see that in Romans chapter 6. It's still crouching at my door. It wants to have me. It's incessant. It never gives up. It's a power that's been dethroned in my life as a believer now, where before it used to sit on the throne of my life and govern everything. 
But it's still there, resident in this fallen flesh, and it still wants its way. Does anybody notice how your flesh wants its way? That's the sinful flesh. It's, sin is crouching at our door. It's right there. It's right there. It wants to what? Have us. But we must what? Master it. We're to hate it. We're to crush it. We're to be brutal with sin. Paul will say later on in Corinthians, he says, I beat my body. I bring it into submission. Because he knew that sin, even in the apostle Paul's life, even sin was crouching at his door and wanted to have him. In Colossians chapter 3, he writes this, put to death, look at the language he uses, put to death, is that violent language? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Why? Because sin is in that earthly nature, it's crouching and it wants to have us. And then he gives us a short list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which he equates with idolatry. He said, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Don't have anything to do with this stuff. Jesus threatens with hell all those who will not deal drastically with sin. You and I cannot afford to sit back assuming because we're saved, we're safe. If we allow sin to have its way in our life. It's just that simple. Again, I call your attention to Paul's words at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, check yourself out to make sure you're of the faith. Well, how do I check myself out? To make sure this stuff is not having me. It's going to be a lifelong battle as long as we're here. Someone asked me one time, does it get easier, Pastor? No. It doesn't get easier. It doesn't get easier because you now realize the longer you walk with the Lord, you realize the depth of sin in your flesh. You begin to see it's not just acts. You begin to see your pride in your flesh. You begin to see your arrogance. You begin to see things that you never saw before. And you go, oh, my gosh. Then you understand and appreciate when God says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. So I submit to you that sin must be taken seriously because ultimately it leads to hell. Ultimately. Now, in the Jewish culture, I think this is just kind of good background to know. The right eye and the right hand where, 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 by the way, does Jesus sit in heaven? At the right hand. So the right side expresses the best. So the right eye, the right hand, if you will, represented the person's very best, very, the most precious faculties that they possessed. Now, literally, it wasn't, the right eye wasn't better than the left eye, but the point is, symbolically, the right side was always the best side. That's why we have Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so the right eye represented the man's best vision, his best sight, clear sight. The left hand, or I'm sorry, the right hand, uh, one's best skills. Jesus' point was that we should be willing, in gouging out the right eye or cutting off the right hand, metaphorically speaking, we should be willing to give up whatever is necessary, even the most important, precious, cherished things we have, if doing that will help protect us from evil. Let me give you an example. I had a conversation with a man after the Friday night service. I've known him for years. He's always been wobbly in his walk with the Lord. He's in and out of church. He's wobbly, and you can't really nail him down too much. So he comes up to me afterwards and he says, you know, he says, uh, he says, what should I do? Where do I start? He volunteers to me. Right, 
he just volunteers this. I had no prior knowledge. He volunteers to me that he has a collection. Years and years and years, he's been collecting uh, um, record albums of all the rock bands down through the past. You know, when he told me he has all these albums, I said, well, yeah, Frank Sinatra. No, he characterized them for me. He said, oh, no, no, yeah, I've got it all over there, hard bands. I said, do you still listen to all that stuff? Oh, no, 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 I just, I just keep them. They're valuable. They're valuable. So what if, I, what if I just suggested to you that you throw them all away, burn them, break them up, get rid of them? you would have thought that I just suggested he gouge out his right eye and cut off his right hand. He said, oh, he said, you know how much money they're worth? Make my case. I said, you know what? There's a stronghold in your life. There's a stronghold in your life. You don't see it, and maybe you don't want to even believe it, but I promise you, you must get rid of this stuff. I don't think he believed me because he didn't say he would. But I submit to you that things to us that can be and may in fact be a stumbling block to us in our life, that we cherish them. We hold on to them. Oh, they're precious. Oh, it's valuable. I can't get rid of that. You need to get rid of it. You need to cut the ties with that stuff. Because if you don't, you have a, you have a place where the devil maintains a foothold in your life. I promise you. However valuable something may be to you, if it is going to be a source of stumbling to you, whether you realize it or not, if your life is not what it ought to be and you are not growing spiritually and you are still wobbly spiritually, then you need to look at your life. What is it that I need to get rid of? What is it I need to get separated from? If that's something, maybe a stumbling block, I need to get rid of it. I need to be brutal. It's like gouging out my eye and cutting off my hand. You've got to be brutal with that stuff. If you're to deal effectively with sin, it's not a matter simply of not committing certain acts. It's a question of dealing with the pollution of sin that still resides in our human nature, the pollution of sin still in our human heart. That's the stuff that makes us double-minded. When you're double-minded, James says you're unstable in all your ways. You're stuck between the world and the kingdom. You can't move. You're frustrated. Sin is a force. It's a power. And it's resident in our nature, our human nature, as a result of the fall. It's not something you can, you can go to a therapist and get psychologized out of. It's something you must repent of, something you must get rid of. It's that simple, but it's not easy. If we're to deal with sin, we must first realize its nature and its consequences. What must we realize? Its nature and its consequences. We talked about its nature. I want to talk to you about its consequences. In inadequate... An inadequate understanding of sin is the chief cause of a lack of true holiness and sanctification. Again, I call your attention to the principle of spiritual growth. We call that sanctification. Your life is being sanctified. You're growing and maturing. You're becoming more holy, if you will. God says, be holy because I am holy. He's at work in my life so that I can be holy, and yet I'm supposed to work that holiness out, aren't I? All that being true, if I'm holding on to stuff, as I said a moment ago, there is not going to be any, any growth in my Christian life is going to be weak and wobbly and it's not going to progress and I'm not going to have victory in my life. This is why you must have a correct understanding of the nature of sin and its consequences. Though a person doesn't do anything necessarily, 
anything wrong. People say, oh, I don't, I don't do all this. I, don't, I, don't, I, I really try to do what's right. Great. You're still sinful. You're still sinful. Your nature is sinful. And it's that sinful nature that leads to the actions ultimately. And again, the actions are simply just like the symptoms of a disease, aren't they? We have a disease. I, I hate to use that, that analogy, but it's a good one. We have this disease, it's called sin, and it leads to symptoms, just like a, a natural disease leads to symptoms. We don't just treat the symptoms, you've got to get to the disease itself. And it is sin that caused God in his great love and his great mercy to do what he did. We typically think of the consequences of sin simply with respect to us. What are the consequences to me when I sin? What are the consequences to me? That fits with my nature, doesn't it? It's all about me. Rarely, rarely do we take into account the consequences of sin to God. We just commemorated and celebrated and memorialized the consequences of sin to him. Where do we do that? At the table. When we took those elements. We remembered. We memorialized. And Dale had us thank God for what he did. What he gave. How many parents do we have? Is this a fair statement? That parents give up a lot and suffer for their kids? Do the kids appreciate it? It's all about them. They have no idea until they grow up and they have kids. I remember my wife went back to her mother after Michael was born. She went back to her mother and said, Mom, I apologize. I ask you forgiveness for all that I said and did. I get it now. I understand. The same thing is true of us. We think of the consequences of sin just simply with respect to us, and we don't even take into consideration what they cost him. Because he loves us, because he's gracious and merciful and compassionate and forgiving, because he wants us, he wants us, even though we didn't want him, he still left heaven, came down here, clothed himself in flesh, became one of us. Did we receive him? No. No. We rejected him. We insulted him. We only came to him when we wanted something. And yet he gave, didn't he? And ultimately, he came to the place where he was in a garden called Gethsemane. He loved us so much that he sweat blood over us. And if that weren't enough, he was betrayed by us. He was dragged off before a kangaroo court, falsely accused. And then he was beaten. We slapped him, spit on him, mocked him. We pulled his beard out. We pressed a crown of thorns into his scalp. We whipped him. Tortured him. And if that weren't bad enough, and then we took him up to a hill and nailed him to a tree. And then we continued to mock him and laugh at him. That's sin. That's the consequence of sin. That's what sin did to him. We come to the table, we say, God, we are so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we do that to each other, don't we? We do the same thing to each other. We mock each other. We mistreat each other. We ignore each other. 
Beloved, we can never, ever remind ourselves too frequently of the nature of sin and its consequences. Secondly, the, we must realize the importance of our own soul and its destiny. Jesus says later on in chapter 16 of Matthew, what good will it be for a man if he gives his whole, gets the whole world and forfeits his what? His soul. Wow, so what? Well, look at everything I've accumulated. So what? You're going to lose your soul. What are you thinking? Again, that's another parabolic statement like he uses here. It, it's, it reminds us of what Jesus' words here in our text. It's better for one to lose a part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. It's a similar idea. He uses extreme language to get people's attention. Luke chapter 14, he says it, puts it this way. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's just impossible. You think he means that? He uses parabolic language there. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, but why? Because we are so dense. Unless he speaks in these extreme terms, we go, oh, hum, oh, hum. Parents, have you ever been so exasperated with your kids you actually yelled at them? <laughs> Moms, have you ever been so exasperated with your kids you yelled at them? Listen to me when I'm talking to you. That's parabolic language for Mom. No, he's, he's telling us nothing, nothing and no one should come between us and him. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is that comes between us and him, if it, 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 it's harmful to our soul, it must be done away with. I'm not going to participate in this relationship. If you don't want Jesus, don't, I don't want you in my life. And there's so many people who compromise that way to their own detriment. We are to put our soul and our eternal destiny before everything else except that relationship with him. It may mean that you don't get the attention you want. It may mean that you don't get the relationship you want. It may mean that you don't get the job you want, the promotion you want. It, doesn't, it, means that, it may mean that you don't do as well as somebody else does. Well, what is your soul worth? What is your soul worth? I mean, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? What's my soul worth? Do I have a price? Is there a price I'm willing to, to give? Huh? Can I be bought? Thirdly, we must hate sin and do all we can from keep, to keep it from reigning in our mortal bodies. Again, going back to God speaking to Cain, he says sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. You must master it. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6. Don't let sin reign any longer in your mortal body. It's used to reigning. Here you are as a non-believer, sin controlled you. Absolutely, it reigned. It governed. You couldn't not, not sin until, of course, you were set free from the power of sin by Jesus Christ. But sin still resides in our human nature. Now, now he can tell us, okay, you don't have to let it rain anymore like it did before. You've been set free from its power. You've been set free from its penalty. Don't let it rain. Don't let it rain. Don't let it sit on the throne of your life anymore like it used to. Now, who sits on the throne of our life? Who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Jesus is. He sits on the throne. We don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We hate it. The psalmist in Psalm 97 says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Think of the converse of that. If you don't hate evil, what does that say about your love of the Lord? You don't. 
You can say all day long, I love the Lord, but if you're, if you're cohabitating with evil, you can't say you love the Lord. The same thing is true in Proverbs 8.13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. The problem today in this world, and even in many quarters of the churches, there are not people who fear God. Well, I, I, I just want to love God. No, you need to fear him. You need to fear him. He is God. <laughs> My friend Jay Agajanian, a number of years ago, Francie's husband, I was talking about this and he, said over, he sat over here one day and he just shouted out to me, he says, you better lean on God before he leans on you. Remember that? He still says it, yes. The more we understand sin, the more we will hate it. We see things, if you watch the news, you see things happening that on the news and how they spin all that stuff, and you go, oh, oh, how horrible. Isn't that true? Yep. And we, we hate that stuff. We hate that stuff. You got to have the same response to sin in your own life. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And pretty soon you'll hate it so much, guess what? You won't do it. It's that simple. Fourthly, our ambition should be to have a clean, pure heart. You have to ask yourself that question. Is that my ambition? To have a clean, pure heart? Jesus talks about this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Who will see God? Those who are pure in heart. You want to see God? How many want to see God? Pure in heart. Pure in heart. Is that your goal? Is that your ambition? To be someone who's pure in heart. I want to suggest to you, that's the essence of holiness. That's what holiness is all about. Being pure of heart. You can't think of holiness only in terms of not doing certain things like murder or adultery. Now, of course, there are certain things we must not do. But the Pharisees were expert at that, weren't they? But that's where they stopped. They didn't go any further than just not doing things. Jesus said, in effect, we must aim at a heart that is pure and clean. We must aim at a heart that is pure and clean. This is very, very important. Pay attention now. Jesus said we must what? Aim at a heart that is pure and clean. Now say it with me again. We must aim at a heart that's pure and clean. Does that sound like a good thing? Something to aspire to? Can you and I accomplish that? Can you and I accomplish getting a heart that's pure and clean? It's our goal. It's our aim. We aspire. We aspire to holiness. We aspire to holiness, right? But as much as you and I aspire to that, and we see that clearly, and we hate sin in us, and we want a heart that's pure and clean, where do I get that heart? Who provides it? Only Jesus provides it. I've got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for it. And the only way I'll hunger and thirst for it is if I see sin in all of its nature, all of its consequences, how ugly it is, how destructive it is, and I come to this understanding and I see I want a heart that is pure and clean. God, help me. Only Jesus can provide that heart. You must be. You must be. You must be. Shout it. You must be. You must be. You must be. All right. Did I make my point? We must deal with sin radically. Again, I call your attention to Paul, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, verse 27. He says, I beat my body 
I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I preach to myself four times every weekend. You only have to endure me once. I have to endure me four times, notwithstanding the fact that I take a whole week to prepare this stuff. I'm always thinking. I, too, have to beat my body, sometimes literally. Make it my slave, so that after I preach to you, I will not be disqualified. All of us, all of us, you've got to keep sin reined in and get rid of it. Paul says in Romans 13, 14, do not even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Do we think about that? Do we think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature? All the time. My sinful nature goes, I want this, I want this, I want this. Does anybody know? Is that just me? <laughs> Is it just me? Okay, just me. Now again, I'm preaching to myself. Okay. Oh, this flesh is, it, it's incessant. It never gives up. Sin is crouching at my door. It wants to have me. Don't even think about how to gratify this. Nope. No. How many of you like to go to Costco? <laughs> Worst place to go for the sin nature. <laughs> I hate it. I hate going to Costco. But I love it. Do you have a love-hate relationship with Costco like I do? I love those oatmeal raisin cookies. <laughs> to die for. Potato bagels. I'm sorry, Ray. <laughs> Christmas time. Costco sells eggnog by the gallon. I love eggnog. Ask my wife. Christmas time, we can hardly wait till Christmas because eggnog is in the markets again. Eggnog. I love it. I buy it three to four gallons at a time. <laughs> I'm, I'm disgusting. I disgust myself. <laughs> I went there and I couldn't find it. And so I had to guy, find the guy. I said, where's the eggnog? <sighs> I was out of control. I put on 12 pounds over Christmas. I'm down six. I have six more to go. I would get that eggnog. We have a refrigerator in our garage as well as in our kitchen to store all my eggnog. I would go in there and I'd get that eggnog jug. I don't even use a glass. Glug, 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 glug. Glug, 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 glug. And I'm back 10 minutes later. That's why I buy it four gallons at a time. Don't even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Paul says it a different way in Galatians chapter 5. Live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Now I confess to you that when I do that, I'm not exactly living by the Spirit. I'm living by the spirit of sin. Gluttony. Live by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit is what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Oh, there it is. I need to be walking by the spirit. 
Think of how much money I could save. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I fall in that last category, and the like. <laughs> and he says, I warn you, as I did before. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can profess all day long, but if you live like this, and then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience. How, how many would like to be more loving? How many would like to be more joyful? How about more peaceful? How about more patient? <laughs> Please, God more patient. How about kinder? How about gooder? <laughs> more faithful? More gentle? How about self-control? Oh, there I am. Yeah. He says, if you walk after the Spirit, these things will characterize your life and you will not fulfill the desires of the sinful flesh. You walk after the Spirit. What does it mean to walk after the Spirit? It means, quite simply, I read your book. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's what it means to walk after the Spirit. It's no mystery. You don't have to go off to some spiritual weirdness. Walking in the Spirit simply is saying, oh, oh, okay, yes, Lord. Has he made it possible for me to do that now as a believer? Yes, he has. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't even think about how to, how to do the, the satisfy the desire. Just the Spirit. Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. The principle is this. If we don't consciously... And if we don't purposefully control what is around us, I'm speaking simply about Christians right now. In other words, if we're not controlling where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we see, the company we keep and the conversations we have, then these things will control us. It's that simple. And what you cannot control you should get rid of without hesitation. I had a relationship with a, a man who was for years and years and years embedded in the homosexual lifestyle. Embedded in it. And he was so disgusted with himself. He so hated it. He felt so degraded. As much as he tried to rationalize that this was the way God made him and, da, 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 and all that stuff. He hated it. And he came to me and he said, does God love me? I said, God loves you more than you can imagine. Will God help me? Yes. I want out. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yes. Will you do everything that I tell you to do? hesitation. There's always a hesitation. Yes. All right. Are you sure? Yes. So we went over to his house. I took a whole package of garbage bags. I said, the first thing we're going to do is we are going to take all of your albums, all of your pictures, all of your mementos, 
all of your stuffed animals, all the paraphernalia that reminds you of your lifestyle that you've chosen. And we're going to put all that stuff in these garbage bags and we are going to throw them away. Now you can understand there was a measure of hesitation. <gasps> that too. What's that? Oh, that too. I literally stripped him bare. Clothes, gifts, pictures, albums. I went through his place with a fine tooth comb and made him throw all this stuff in these bags. He had to do it. We had about five or six big garbage bags full of stuff. Drove over here, put it in our dumpster. I locked the dumpster. <laughs> Why would I do that? We began a process of a life change, his decisions. I was his coach. I said, if you'll do what I tell you to do, you'll be free of this lifestyle. We made terrific progress. He was only cruising the bathrooms in the community two nights a week instead of every night. Some of you know what I mean. He was only going to the adult bookstores two nights a week instead of every night. It was agony for him. He was so lonely. But the more we distance him from that stuff, the more freedom he began to experience. If you cannot control something, you must get rid of it. And you must be brutal at doing it. Obviously, though getting rid of harmful influences will not change a corrupted, sinful heart into a pure heart, because external acts cannot produce those kind of inner benefits. But I submit to you at the same time, just as the external act of adultery reflects a heart that's already adulterous, the external act of ridding oneself of whatever is harmful reflects a heart that does in fact hunger and thirst for righteousness. The external act is effective protection because it comes from a heart that is seeking to do God's will instead of its own. All people ultimately are murderers, says Jesus. All people, says Jesus, ultimately are adulterers. Most don't realize it. And why is that? Because I submit to you the subtlety and deceptiveness of sin and its blinding effect on our minds. Jesus does not suggest that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, or anyone else for that matter, could deliver themselves from the propensity to sin. He wants to see our desperateness. As always, the impossibility sets before us has a twofold purpose. One, to make people despair of their own righteousness. And as you do that, you hunger his, for his righteousness. That's his purpose. That's his strategy. Unless you and I are desperate and we see that our righteousness is not sufficient, it must go beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then it's only then that we begin to really understand what it means to hunger after his righteousness. Jesus' remedy for a wicked heart is a new heart. And his answer for our helplessness is his sufficiency. He is sufficient. I'm not sufficient. And we gain this new heart when we are. We gain this new heart when we are. We gain this new heart when we are. And his sufficiency is provided to us by his Holy Spirit who lives in us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul tells us this. It's by the Spirit who lives in us that we put to death the misdeeds of the body, not in our own strength. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. How do I deal with it? By the power of God's Spirit. 
Two things happen simultaneously in us. Paul identifies these two things in Philippians chapter 2. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue, notice this, continue to work out your salvation. What does he say? Continue to do what? Work out your salvation. What's he talking about? He's talking about not letting sin reign in your mortal body anymore. He's talking about hating it. He's talking about getting rid of stuff. He's talking about not even thinking how you can gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. All of that stuff, he sums up there. Work out your salvation. And he says, work it out how? With fear and trembling. Fear and trembling? Yes. Why fear and trembling? Look at the next verse. What's he say? Because who's working in me? God. God is at work in me. God is at work in me. How do you know God's at work in you? Because he, he's working so that you will will and you will do his good pleasure. Church, one way or another, God's going to have his way. Either you can go with him or he takes you to divine woodshed and whips your bottom. Do I have your attention? I mean, that's what God says. Do I have your attention? <laughs> it's very simple. Those two things happen simultaneously. He's at work in me. I'm to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. He's at work in me. I'm to work it out. Not work for it. Work it out. It is by the power of God's Spirit in us that we gouge out our eye and we cut off our hand Figuratively speaking. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, have your way in us. We are willing, willing, willing to have your way in us. We want your will. We thank you for the great salvation that you have purchased for us. We thank you for the hope that we have. And we grieve over, we're sorry, we hate our sin. We thank you. Lord, for reminding us about these things in such extreme terms. And thank you that you allow us to keep our right eye and our right hand, but you don't want us to keep those things that our right eye and our right hand symbolize that will stumble us. I pray, God, that your spirit will enable us, each one today, to make a decision before we leave here to put off these things to have no more to do with the things of the flesh, but truly to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, to trust you with all of our heart, acknowledge you in all of our ways and not lean on our own understanding because we have the confidence that you will make our path straight. I pray for those this morning, Lord, who, who may be here and not know you. I ask you to turn their heart, God, towards you sovereignly grant them repentance and save them. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen, church?